Welcome to the third season of Murder in 20 podcast, where I, Bobby Stevens, am your host with a new episode every Wednesday. If you're a serious fan of true crime and love listening to podcasts, but don't want all that small talk, you've come to the right place. We get right to the facts. Murder in 20 episodes are concise and complete in 20 minutes. Less talk and more true crime. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. In northern Jackson County in Oklahoma, in the small town of Blair, Clarence Ray Allen was born in 1930. The town's population had reached 585. Clarence, who went by his middle name Ray, was the youngest of five children. His family had roots with the Choctaw Nation and lived off the land. By age 11, he was picking cotton in the fields. The family moved to South Texas, but Ray left school by the eighth grade and headed west to the San Joaquin Valley in California. By 17, Ray was married. The San Francisco Chronicle reported that the couple had two boys and Ray became a deacon at the church. By his mid-twenties, Ray was working at an olive warehouse and eventually became a manager. But for Ray, the paycheck wasn't enough. He and a few fellow employees stole 3,000 cases of olives and sold them. At 32, he was caught, charged, convicted, and sent to jail for one year. After his release, he and his wife divorced. Ray got custody of his two sons, and they moved to Fresno. There, he worked the day shift at a steel plant and nights as a security guard. In 1968, Ray was 38 when he started his own security business. The company grew to 60 employees. Ray enjoyed hosting barbecues for the employees and their families. Ray was a family man who never missed a birthday, holiday, or one of his grandchild's sports games. Ray had become successful. He now owned a plane and show horses and got remarried. At a horse show, he befriended a couple, and when they celebrated their 40th wedding anniversary, Ray hand wrote them a poem and framed it and gave it to them as a gift. But then, at the age of 44, something changed in Ray. Now divorced again, and with his sons grown, he was all alone and free to be what he wanted. And that was a criminal. He used information gathered by his security business and brought in accomplices to carry out numerous armed robberies. Then Ray planned a robbery much closer to home. For ten years, he knew the owner of Franz Market. He recruited two of his employees and his youngest son, Roger. Roger invited the store owner's son, Byron, to a swimming party. While Byron was swimming, the store keys were stolen from his parents' pocket. Afterwards, Ray had arranged for young Mary Sue Kitts to go out on a date with Byron. During their date, Ray and his two employees used the keys to rob the market. They got away with a safe 
and $500 in cash, and $10,000 in money orders. Ray handed the money orders to his son, Mary, his girlfriend Shirley, and a few other people, including Eugene Furrow. Court records reveal that they visited shopping malls in Southern California and used false identification to cash the money orders. But what Ray didn't count on was that Mary had a conscience. She confessed to Byron and pointed the finger at Ray. Byron then approached Roger and told him what he knew. Roger, in turn, told his father. Ray's response? That Byron and Mary would have to be dealt with. Ray held a meeting with Eugene and his accomplices and told them that Mary had been talking too much, but that she should be killed. And he came up with a plan to kill her with cyanide. He sent his employees to a winery to get the cyanide while he loaded stones into the back of a truck. They invited Mary to a party. Ray made sure to leave before she arrived. Mary was offered a capsule, but declined. She wanted some wine first. Ray phoned the apartment to see how it was going, but was upset when he found out she hadn't taken it. Someone ran out and picked up some wine, but Mary still didn't want to take the capsule. When Ray phoned Eugene again, he told him he didn't care how it was done, just do it. Everyone left the apartment, except Eugene and Mary. Without warning, he began to strangle her. But then his phone rang. It was Ray, asking, is it done yet? When Eugene told him no, he was ordered to do it. Eugene hung up the phone and returned to strangling Mary. She died at 17. Eugene called Ray to pick up her body. They drove into the mountains. As they passed over a canal, they stopped the car. Wire was used to attach the stones to her body. As Ray watched for traffic, they threw Mary into the water. Mary's parents were lost without their daughter and reported her missing. They had waited 19 years to have their only child. That summer, Ray and his accomplices went on a spree of armed robberies. They robbed an elderly couple at their jewelry store and stole $18,000 worth of jewelry from their safe. A few weeks later, they robbed a small hotel and stole $3,600 from their safe, along with robbing customers of cash and credit cards. Six months later, they robbed an elderly couple of a $100,000 coin collection. They continued into 1975 and in the summer attempted to rob a forestry business when their luck ran out. Ray was arrested, but within a year he was out and robbed a drugstore. A month later, he robbed a grocery store. 
In the spring of 1977, Ray brought two new employees into his crime family. He told them point blank, if you bring anybody into this house that snitches on me or my family, I'll waste them. One of them asked Ray what would happen if he was arrested. And he replied, You've heard of the long arm of the law before. Well, don't underestimate the long arm of this Indian. I will reach out and waste you. Ray told one of his employees that he believed there was a second safe at Franz Market and that it contained anywhere from fifty to $75,000. Ray then enlisted his son, Roger, and the new employees to rob a Kmart store in Tulare, where they got away with $16,000 in cash. Afterwards, Ray wasn't happy with how one of the employees performed and replaced him. That would turn out to be a bad decision. In March, they robbed another Kmart store. His new recruit shot a bystander. Police swooped in and arrested him, along with Ray, who was tried and convicted of attempted robbery and assault with a weapon. Ray was then also charged with Mary's murder. At his trial, Byron testified against him. Ray was convicted of first-degree murder, burglary, and conspiracy, and sentenced to life in prison. But Ray planned to appeal his conviction, and to be successful, he felt he needed to eliminate the witnesses, including one of his ex-accomplices and the father and son team at Franz Market. Within the Folsom prison walls, Ray made friends with Billy Ray Hamilton, whose nickname was Country. Now Billy was being paroled soon, and Ray hired him to eliminate the witnesses. Billy walked out of prison in July 1980, and Ray's oldest son, Kenneth, met him at the bus depot and supplied him with guns. A month later, Ray wrote a letter to his son. Court records revealed that he said in part, and I quote, Hey, I hear a country music show is coming to town around September 3rd. Six days later, he wrote another letter. Remember September 3rd? Around that day, y'all be listening to a lot of good old country music. You know how I like country. The next day, he sent another letter. Have everything ready so y'all can go to that country music show. I know y'all really enjoy yourselves. On September 5th, Billy took a shotgun, 32 caliber revolver, and ammunition, along with his girlfriend Connie, and went to Franz Market. Byron is working with his dad and Josephine Rochaw, Douglas White, and Joe Rios. Byron had cut his hand on a piece of glass, and his dad, Raymond, was trying to get him to go home. But Byron insisted on staying and sent his dad home. Just before closing at 8 p.m., Billy and Connie barged in. Billy ordered Douglas into the freezer to where the safe was. But Douglas told them there was no safe. Then Billy asked for Byron. Byron gave Billy his keys 
and said he could have all the money he wanted. Connie held a gun on the employees, while Byron led Billy to the stockroom. Billy raised the shotgun. With the gun barrel less than a foot away, he fired. The bullet hit Byron in the forehead. Billy returned to the front of the store and asked Douglas again, Where's the safe? Again, he responded, There wasn't one. At point-blank range, Billy shot him in the chest. A few feet away, Josephine began to cry. Billy turned and shot her in the heart. Then two more times. Joe ran and managed to make it to the woman's washroom. But Billy found him, pushed open the door, and pointed the shotgun at his face. Joe flung his arm up. He didn't want to see what was going to happen next. Billy pulled the trigger. The bullet hit his elbow. Billy told Connie, Let's go, baby. A neighbor who heard gunshots spotted them. Connie ran back inside and hid in the washroom. Billy fled as he and the neighbor exchanged gunfire, and Billy was hit in the foot by a bullet. Police arrived and arrested Connie. Joe miraculously survived. One of the store's neighbors called Raymond. He arrived at the scene the same time as the sheriff. He opened the door and saw a pool of blood. He waited outside. It wasn't long before his worst fears were confirmed. Byron was dead at 27. Josephine's family received a phone call saying that a woman had survived. Her mother ran to the hospital while her father and sisters waited at home. But when the coroner knocked on the door with Josephine's driver's license, they knew. Josephine was a talented artist and gardener with plans to become a teacher and fill her home with family and flowers. Josephine died at 17. Douglas at six foot six was a gentle giant and the baby of his family. With plans to study law and architecture, he would join his mother in the family business. His brother George happened to drive by the store, saw the commotion, and raced home to tell his parents. Outside, they were led to believe that Douglas had survived. But then Byron's father broke the news to them. Douglas died at 18. Billy escaped and went to stay with a fellow parolee. While hiding out, he robbed a liquor store and got caught. When police arrested him, they found an address book with a list of names and addresses of witnesses who had testified against Ray. Meanwhile, Kenneth was arrested on drug charges. Police questioned him to see what he knew about the murders. At the time, he said nothing. 
but a week later, he contacted police and negotiated a plea deal. He would tell them what he knew in exchange for being put in protective custody and choosing which prison he would be sent to. In June 1981, Ray was charged with murdering Byron, Josephine, and Douglas, and conspiring to kill seven witnesses. Prosecutors then learned that Kenneth had written to his father, promising to change his testimony at the trial. His plea agreement was terminated. Ray's trial began in the summer of 1982. Over 23 days, almost 60 witnesses testified. The jury were shown color photographs of the victims taken at the crime scene. Ray took the stand in his own defense and denied his involvement. Surprisingly, his son Kenneth testified against his father. Ray was found guilty and sentenced to death. Over the next 23 years, he would outlive three dates with the executioner. His time finally ran out. On January 17, 2006, 76-year-old Ray became the oldest man ever to be executed in California. In front of 50 witnesses, he took his last breath at 12.38 a.m. Thanks for listening to Murder in 20 with less talk and more true crime. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of Tina Fails. She was only 14 when she was bullied at school. That same day, 16-year-old Stephen Carlson was also bullied. On the way home, the two victims crossed paths. Then one of them flushed out in anger and rage and the other one was left dead. If you're dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murderin20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or murderin20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Purple Planet for use of their music, sound effects from Vaseline Studios and Quick Sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers. <laughs>